This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. In this episode, we are not focused on a particular use case or the impact of AI in one particular sector. We are focused on the international game of power that is technological predominance. Whether you are on the political right or the political left, it really doesn't matter at all to me. Probably all of us can agree that some basic freedoms, such as freedom of speech, freedom of the press, are things that we enjoy, regardless of which political sway we happen to have. There are certainly authoritarian regimes who do not necessarily respect those rights per se, and whose ascendance to political predominance would be pretty challenging, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. The West versus China when it comes to the AI race is a critical and important topic, one that I think is drastically underrepresented in conversations about AI ethics and AI risk. This week, we focus squarely on that topic, and we're lucky to be joined by Sean Gurley, who's currently the CEO of Primer AI. They've raised some $170 million to focus on the analysis of large volumes of data. Sean earned his PhD in physics and complex systems at the University of Oxford, where he was also a research fellow for five years on quantitative analysis of war and conflict. Prior to that, he was a research scientist for NASA. Sean tackles two big topics in this episode. Number one, what are some of China's great advantages in the future of AI power when it comes to our entry into the metaverse, when it comes to the ascendancy of cyber warfare versus just tanks and helicopters? Where does China have an edge over the Western world broadly? Secondly, Sean talks about what the Western world should be thinking about in terms of keeping up with and keeping in check the authoritarian regime of China, whether this is dealing with TikTok whether this is the adoption of artificial intelligence or new modes of collaboration internationally, Sean has some perspectives on what he hopes the Western world will do to maintain enough strength to remain relevant and be able to keep those values alive in the coming half century ahead. I should note, as we head into this article, I just published a substantial piece in our series called AI Power on China's advantages in the metaverse. Sean is quoted in this article as are leaders from the Department of Defense here in the United States the chief minister of digital from the country of France, and other policy experts and thinkers on artificial intelligence. You can find that article, again, China's Advantages in the Metaverse, at emerj.com slash China, and then the number one. So C-H-I-N-A, the number one. So emerj.com slash China one. You can learn more about that. We have, again, Sean quoted in that article, but we explore the topic in great depth. Without further ado, let's fly into this episode with Sean Gurley here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Sean, welcome to the program. Hi, Dan. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm, we are uh, luckily speaking about a topic that is dear to my heart, something that we've spoken about with folks in the public sector, not as many in the private sector. You guys are doing some exciting things in both the public and private sector world, and we're going to finally be able to talk about the international power game of artificial intelligence. The United States, Europe, China, very big blocks of power, and, and China is certainly growing in many important regards that has a lot of folks in the West in some ways shaking in their boots, and there's so much to consider here. I know the first topic we wanted to unpack was the potential role of the EU. Lots of regulation going on in the EU, some innovation going on in the EU. When you think about their role in this bigger international power game, what are the, the levers to think about here and what's your take? Yeah, I think you know one of the things that jumped out to me when we were tracking 
you know, the top scientific papers published in the AI space. And you look at that and China's, you know, certainly passed the US and, you know, the top 10% of papers being published and closing in on the top 1%. If you bring EU into that, the, the combined kind of publishing research capability output is, is far in advance of China today and gives us a decent kind of like gap on top of this. So I think firstly, the EU, you know, has opportunity with the talent and the research and the capabilities you know, to actually combine with the US and, and give us a significant advantage on the the research and the publication front. I think, you know, so there's there's a talent pool there to kind of, you know, partner and, and ally with. I think the issue really comes around regulation and you can start to kind of see, you know, the US and the EU potentially taking different paths towards regulation of AI, what it can be trained on, what it can be used for, how the data can be stored, which may make it quite difficult for that collaboration to really kind of come together. So I think the big question is at the moment, yes, there's technology and capabilities and talent. Yes, there's political alignment. Is there regulatory alignment that allows that thing to work? And, you know, that's an open question at the moment. Yeah. And I've I've seen the struggles around this, you know, in the kind of big intergovernmental bodies, the United Nations, the, the OECD, who tends to work with more, you know, the Western sort of portion of the world. The way that I see it often, Sean, and you might differently, is that there are folks whose predominant concern is, hey, there's these tech monopolies and they're gaining too much power. And maybe some of these technologies could subvert you know, privacy, security, some of the things that we all uphold as important values in society. And then there are others who say we need to both ensure that those things still exist and ensure that we are technologically predominant in the face of you know, and uh, competitors with slightly different values in terms of, you know, openness and freedoms. It seems like it's, there's folks in kind of either or camp in some regards. And I almost see it as a battle out between those two groups in the EU. Yeah, look, that's exactly right. I'd say it's, it, you know, it, it changes massively when missiles start going through apartment buildings. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the differences that we might hold suddenly, I think, you know, can become, you know, relatively minor when confronted with an opponent. So, I, you know, I hope we get there sooner through that. I think, the differences are probably overstated. I think the the other piece of this here is like a lot of those regulatory components are really, you know, governed for commercial, you know, applications, for consumer applications. And, you know, I think it's important to not wrap up and confuse regulatory behaviors for consumers with regulatory behaviors for what's ultimately, you know, defense infrastructure. So I think I think there's room to to have both kind of living there, and you know I think there's probably a general you know will and acceptance that you know there may need to be a different set of of governing principles for artificial intelligence that's going to be used for defense, you know, versus you know selling you a new pair of sneakers. Yeah, you know I I well you're right about the, the missiles going through apartment buildings. I think is is critical. I don't know if the dots are connected right now between. Russia and China in the eyes of, of most folks in the Western world. I, it's almost like, you know, Russia's doing Russia stuff, but you know, does that really mean we have anything to prepare for from from China? And it is a bit of a different world too, right? Because China right now, we could argue, is kind of winning on the TikTok front, drinking in the data. You know, they get ours, we don't get theirs. And and Russia's kind of more infringing on the on the physical front. What do you think it'll take if there's anything, and there's no certainty it'll happen, to have enough alignment between the EU and the US to kind of, you know, make deployment realistic, make 
regulation not a complete barrier to to us moving forward? Because it, it does feel like there's still a lot ahead there in terms of progress. Yeah, look, I, I think first place to start is with, with the UK. I mean, as, as a member of the Five Eyes, I think there's there's a lot of room to kind of coordinate and, you know, perhaps use the UK as a kind of a standard bearer for for how that interaction and engagement works that can then kind of like signal to the rest of the EU what's mm-hmm. going on. So, you know, where that starts and some of those pieces, I think, you know, really around kind of moving from data sharing between Five Eye members into kind of sharing of AI systems, models, training platforms, deployment platforms, that that kind of alliance, I think, you know, is a natural outgrowth from the data sharing arrangements that are currently in place, and I think can serve as a as a strong kind of signal for the rest of the EU of what it means to kind of like really kind of create compatible infrastructure and partnership between defense allies on AI capabilities. I think the second bit there is is also kind of like in the same way there's some stuff to give. I think there's a lot of stuff to learn as well. And, you know, there's, I think, a lot of stuff to learn from from those partners, you know, that, that are currently, you know, engaged in, in conflict, you know, versus Russia at the moment. And, you know, mm. particularly seeing how warfare is sort of starting to emerge and the first kind of image recognition systems are being put on onto the drones and the first kind of, you know, image detection, you know, for satellite, you know, uh, reconnaissance. That stuff, I think, is is for those that have been kind of in the theater and particularly, you know, for defense leaders in Ukraine, being able to come back and take those lessons and start to kind of think about how artificial intelligence can be operationalized there. It's, it's you know, important to kind of recognize that that's, that's the first kind of significant, you know, land war in, in, a, in a long, long time. And there's there's a lot to learn from it. Yeah. So two kind of take home points I just have from that as we transition to our next question in terms of forging enough of an alliance and a kind of a, a working order between the broader Western power bloc, you know, in the face of China, there is potentially a faster coordination with the UK, you know, language, culture, etc. that might create a model for other countries collaborating on the mainland in, in, a, in a broader sense. And then also, let's learn as much as we can, real deployment, real use case wise from what's going on now and just see how much of that we can integrate. Because this is, you know, it's really hard to run full-blown simulations of war, Sean. Maybe one day we'll be there, but we're certainly not there just yet. So that said, we'll get into kind of our next question around where the broader Western powers need to think about strengthening and bolstering. What are the new kinds of collaboration? You had talked about, you know, the sharing of information to potentially the sharing of models. And I know there's all kinds of other components around coordination that could be important. What for you really stands out as things that you hope to see become the sinews between these nations? Yeah, look, I, I think the dynamic here is we look at, you know, what it, what it means to kind of build, you know, great artificial intelligence, you know, capabilities is really an infrastructure question. And, you know, that first and foremost is, you know, made up of having enough compute and having accessibility to compute. And, you know, we, we've seen a lot kind of unfolding in the, in the, the nature of, of chips and, and access control to chips. I, I think that's relatively well sort of established, but that really relies on the Western bloc kind of controlling the production of these chips. If that swings back to China through through the capture of TSMC, then you know we'll be in quite a different world. But you know the control of chip supply is obviously crucial, and the access of those chips to kind of allied countries for training and deploying models becomes a really a really significant you know piece of this puzzle. 
So that's one of it. I think the second bit is is really around the you know the data collection to train these models and that you know particularly the labeling you know for the fine tuning of these capabilities who's doing that lifting who's doing the training who's doing the cap- the, the pre-training of these models and and what the sh- what sharing of that is in place i think it was really interesting seeing you know seeing a lot of sovereign nations investing in in large scale language models investing in large scale image recognition foundation models but also china coming forward and saying if you use any of the chinese developed foundation models for purposes that are antithetical to China, there will be consequences. And so people sort of starting to exert sovereignty over these models and control structures. I'm not sure how much you can control them. You know, there's certainly open questions around that, but, you know, the, the access to and the control structures of these foundation models, I think becomes really interesting and really important. And then finally, you know, common platforms to kind of, you know, to access you know, large pools of talent of subject matter experts that can train these models. And if if the people with the best understanding of Vietnamese are in Vietnam, you know, we probably need to have, you know, access to that. But we probably want to have a joint, you know, a joint kind of like collaboration to share the training, to share the foundation models, to share the compute. And what do you get out of the end of it? You get a high capability that's going to feed straight into your ISR for the region. You know, and maybe that's jointly kind of developed by partners in the South China Sea, jointly accessible, you know, deployed on hardware that's, you know, perhaps US owned. So there's there's some really interesting questions on that, which which I think is sort of like right at the early stages. I don't think people are, are thinking too much about control and it's all sort of been, you know, hey, here's this great model, like, you know, can't you do amazing things with it? But the control pieces and the sovereignty of these pieces, I think, becomes really important. Yeah, you're you're touching on a couple elements of this and and you're right, you know, the the entirety of this future rollout, you know, is not exactly been fleshed out quite that well. I mean, as as you're well aware, the the journey of AI into anywhere in the DoD has been a very very tough going for for many 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 reasons. So, I think being able to think of grand strategy is really hard when when it when it's tough to understand the near-term use cases. But it is important that we discuss it now and hence we're bringing it up on the show. You talked about some of the elements of hardware and kind of dependence. Obviously, there's sort of the the pushback against Huawei in terms of them selling certain things. I think there's recently been some legislation around the production of certain kinds of cutting-edge chips over in China with the full knowledge of what's going to happen to that intellectual property. Are those good starting points, question mark? And secondly, what would be good next steps in your perspective when we think about the future? Yeah, I mean, I just remember down, you'd go into airports in South America, you go to airports in Southern Africa, and they'd be plastered with Huawei ads, you know, and the local ministers would be saying, look, we can buy our, our cell phone infrastructure for 10 cents on the dollar. Isn't that amazing? You know, and of course, the next thing comes back is like, well, is it secure and all the rest of it? And, you know, well, you know, there's certainly issues that, that have arisen around that. You know, I think there's a very similar thing coming out. It's like, here's a new set of high capability chips. You know, isn't it amazing? Everyone can use it. And then you realize that those chips are going through into China to train image recognition models are going to be used to target US assets and US you know, things. And then you look at this and say, well, is it a good idea to send the high performance chips to our opponents so they can train models to attack us and you're like, oh, the light bulb goes on. And you're like, no, it's probably a bad idea. And people have come back and they're like, well, they'll just develop their own. And it's like, yeah, well, look, that argument's just the same of like, look, let's, let's you know, ship Russia missiles because if we don't, they'll just build their own. 
and you're like, that's ridiculous. So yes, it had to happen. And, you know, it's not like China can just click their fingers and build, you know, three, nanom three nanometer fab labs tomorrow that's going to create a, a delta between this. So that's one. I think the, the chips, you know, is, is a great first step. I think the other bit here, though, is like, well, if you're going to have a battle space in the South China Sea, you're going to need ISR capabilities. So have we trained our models up for that region of the world? Because you know China has, <laughs> right? So, you know, you know China's, that's their theater of battle. Have we done our ISR capabilities there? Have we um, trained models for ISR that are specific to that region? Have we, have we worked, you know, our AI systems around that? And, and I think that then becomes an interesting dynamic as China looks to say, well, all right, we're going to battle here. Let's secure deep water ports in the Solomon Islands. Let's secure the Spratly Islands. Let's go through that. What's the equivalent of those deep water ports in that region? for AI systems. And certainly language becomes one of those, right? Like certainly language becomes one of those, but there may be pieces around image recognition components. There may be pieces around swarm dynamics, swarm behavior for reinforcement that's regionally specific. And certainly the other piece of this is, you know, recognizing the capabilities that China has and being very, I would say, precise about understanding the sensitivities of the models that they're running you know, I, I can't help but, you know, think think about, the, you know, them sitting there and saying, well, look, if you're going to run image recognition on top of your drones, like, you know, we've we've spent 10 years understanding all the kind of the the holes in this thing. And so if conflict unfolds, we can quickly exploit those capabilities. Are we doing the same thing? And, you know, I think, you know, are we doing it also for that regionally specific space where the battles are likely to operate? Yeah. In terms of, you know, Going back just to touch on on hardware, as you'd mentioned, you know the Russia missile example makes it laughably silly. Like, well, they'll just build their own stuff. I I'm I happen to be with you in that particular camp. Does it go beyond hardware in in other regards? I mean, you know, certainly I think right now the broad populace does not see TikTok as an arm of the CCP. You know, for whatever reason, Sean, right now, other things are popular. So at some point, you and I will be alive. I'll like tweet at you and I'll be like, hey, Sean, it's happened. And that'll mean people realize that this is a dire threat to like the world and it'll become cool. Like there's there's certain things where if you complain about it, it's very cool. Right now, China, it's really not. So there's there's the data side of things, which is just not even on the public radar. There are other elements of, of control in terms of media. You know, we have like the movie industry, you know, editing out flags of Taiwan or whatever the case may be. There's all these kind of soft influences and data influences and data issue to hardware. Are there any of those that for you from a, a big picture defense perspective should be most on the radar? Yeah, look, information operations is is first and, and, and foremost, I think, a critical part of this of this fight. And it's a fight that's going on today. Look, if you look at the Intelligence Authorization Act that came out Last month, you know, you see explicit call-outs to, you know, to push work on countering Chinese influence in, in South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. So this is very much on the radar. It's on the radar on the Hill. It's on the radar of, of the intelligence organizations, and it's, it's explicitly called out. Now, why is that important? I, I think I look at this and I say, well, look, if China's got a five-year window to kind of like, you know, try and make up on, on chip fabrication, and they've got a massive supply issue. The, the only kind of option they've got is to secure that from somewhere, and, and, and Taiwan becomes a, a very you know, crucial part. Now, if you go into a kinetic conflict with Taiwan, chances are TSMC goes and 
you know, the kind of the, the fabrication facilities go with it. The, the best thing you can hope for is a, is a sort of a, a Hong Kong style, hey, aren't you really China? And the rest of the world is like, yeah, they're kind of China, right? Like, obviously, like, you know, why do we care? And so if you can stop people kind of caring, then you can effectively take that environment, you, you control your chips and you've got the AI capabilities in front of it. So if I'm China sitting here, I want to run a massive information operation to convince the rest of the world that there's nothing to see here and that indeed, you know, Taiwan has always been China and China has always been Taiwan. Now, to do that, what I probably want a global, you know, information network that can control people's kind of exposure to information. So it happens that TikTok has, you know, the dominant screen time in front of, you know, the major demographic all the way probably up to about 30, 35 year olds in this country and maybe getting beyond that. You can imagine if we were running in Ukraine and the Ukrainian population only had exposure to Sputnik and BK, and that was the only information they got, would they have come back and said, you know, Russian ship, fuck you? Would they have come back and, and Snake Island wouldn't have been a thing? The ghost of Kiev wouldn't have been a thing. The woman with the, the, the old woman telling the soldier, when you die here, there'll be sunflowers you know, in your pocket, so flowers will grow on your grave. Like that wouldn't have been a thing. You can't fight a war in this environment if you don't have control over your information networks because they are so susceptible to attacks. And the simplest way to kind of like beat an opponent is to convince them there's no war to fight. So we're in a really dangerous situation. Look, China came in, Facebook went into China, and then the CCP was like, no, we quite like our information ownership control structures and Facebook, you can get out of here. On the flip side of that, Musical.ly gets acquired by uh, you know, Chinese company and gets you know, blown up into the biggest social network that now controls the information kind of diet of a large part of this country. And you, know, you saw what happened you know, with Hong Kong, it became a non a non-reaction, non-event. Yeah, nobody cares. Um, Literally, nobody cares. Nobody cared. And those that did care, yeah, nobody cares. Know, there, was, there was pushes and consequences on top of that. So I think we're in a very, very vulnerable position. China would you know, have direct algorithmic control on, a, on an information scale that, that's perhaps unprecedented for an opponent and an enemy. And you know, we, we've got a big, big issue here to deal with that. And I, you know, I, I don't you know, think it's there, but like, if, I'm, if I'm US, I'm, I'm nationalizing TikTok. Like I'm nationalizing that, like, you know, in the same way that like China would never let us run the global social network of China, you know, we, we should nationalize that. <laughs> so <laughs> I have to say the following, Sean, I am shocked by your frankness in, in speaking about this topic, because I just a lot of the time with these things, people really kind of tippy toe around stuff in terms of what are the big dangers? What what you know, what do you really think we should do? And you're hitting the nail on the head in a couple areas, at least in terms of where you stand. When you say nationalize, I mean, I, I would presume for TikTok, there really isn't going to be a way to do that. It would be getting rid of it in its entirety. And then it would be having its replacement have more control in some way, shape or form, or, or would it involve know. TikTok? I don't know. I mean, look, really? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to kind of consider. You know, if let's put it back into hardware, if the, the biggest missile manufacturer in the world was operating in the US and it was Chinese owned and there was a conflict unfolding with China, you know, you, you would certainly nationalize it and say, oh, thank you very much. We'll take that on. We'll, 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 we'll own that. You know, from a kind of a code-based, code repository, could you do that? Yeah, look, I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, the algorithms that are kind of suggesting data feeds and all the rest of it, you know, 
are probably residing in some special kind of like, you know, data center in, in, in China, of course. But that's pretty straightforward to kind of replicate. And, you know, to be honest, like the, the experience of that social network with US kind of driven algorithmic suggestions versus Chinese ones is probably going to be unnoticeable to the users. You know, today, I, I think, you know, you could probably, you know, take that, replug it and put it back in. Now, the the kind of dynamic then is like, well, <laughs> I'm thinking through, like, what would they actually mean? Well, we control the app stores where they're distributed, they're US companies. So, you know, you just take the, that app and put it back in here. You know, I, I'm not sure, like, what, what would a nationalization of a social network look like? I think it's worth exploring because the other option is 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 you've got to you've got to ban it. But banning things that are kind of intensely popular kind of you know is is also kind of maybe not 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 straightforward. So I'm probably saying here is like, look, we know that you can't let China run the information networks of a country that's going to be you know an opponent in a conflict. so that that that's let's start from there. The second bit is, you know, we, we control the distribution networks of that application in this country. And, you know, we could replace the kind of any of the IP components that are sitting inside of that. So what are you left with is ultimately the distribution channels. Yeah, I, I think it's doable. I think we should look at it. But, you know, it, it's ridiculous that that we would give up that that information, you know, avenue to the population and, and, and to, to a population that we're going to war with. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that the specifics of the nationalization, quote unquote, I think there could be a lot of discourse about that. Certainly too much to unpack here, but interesting to put on the table. I've heard banning put on the table many a time, nationalize and the missile analogy, not. So I would certainly advocate it be bandied about, if you will, if I can try to use yeah, one of the only discussion. British phrases. Let's have the discussion. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yep, let's do it. Well, it'll start here. It's certainly not politically popular, but again, Sean, at some point I'll tweet you and I'll say it's happening. But right now it's, you know, it's 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 a pretty lonely crowd. We'll move into our last question here, and this is really around the greatest advantages that China has. We've talked about some pretty substantial ones, one of them being this great information vacuum that they have and and the fact that they are able to mold the propaganda information ecosystem of their own populations and ours at the same time. Literally, I would like if you want to rule the world, you want to be Xi Jinping. End of story, as far as I'm concerned. Just full stop. That's one big one. But there's others as well. And I know you had talked about deployment as a major advantage that China has over the Western world. Talk to us a little bit about what you mean by deployment and why it matters so much in this sort of arms race dynamic. Yeah, look, one of the things that jumps out is the speed at which artificial intelligence is kind of progressing. And, you know, if you look at you know, just take one we're probably more familiar with image generation algorithms. If, if you rewind, you know, six months, you know, you were certainly, you know, you were certainly at a place where it was sort of fuzzy. The, the generation capabilities were, you know, somewhat, you know, interesting, but it wasn't kind of like draw dropping kind of like, oh my God, they've, they've created magic. And we fast forward six months and now we're in a place where you're like, all creative artists are out of work, <laughs> right? Like, you know, th this is incredible. Yep. This is amazing like that. So six months is the difference between, you know, night and day in artificial intelligence world. So if you're at the top of the game, you can have a six month advantage over people who are not. And so that's kind of the time frame you're working with. Now, if it takes you three years to get that into the hands of a soldier, then, you know, it doesn't matter if you've had six month advantage. If your opponent's able to get there in two years or one year, 
they can be behind in the AI capabilities by six months, which is, you know, first and last, and they can still out-compete you, outperform against you on the battlefield because they've taken six-month-old technology into the battlefield in 12 months, and you've taken today's technology there in three years. And, you know, I think the paradigm that we've got is, is teed up and set up for grand kind of hardware deployments of things like F-35s, where, you know, if you've got the best plane today and it takes 10 years to deploy it, you've probably still got the best plane in the world. Um, if you've got the best AI today and it takes you 10 years to deploy it, you've got the worst AI in the world. And, you know, I think, I think the speed of that hasn't really sunk in. And that's pre-conflict. Once conflict happens, your algorithm that you had today may have a gaping hole in it with a, a huge attack surface that your enemy is exploiting. And you've got to upgrade that in hours or minutes, perhaps, not in days, weeks, months, or years. So the speed to deployment in a world where AI is increasing at the rate it is, is the determining factor of who has the best AI advantage in conflict, not who has the best AI capabilities and research. I actually think that the simple idea that you've put forth here, this idea that if you have the latest technology and it takes you three years to deploy it and somebody else has two-year-old technology and they deploy it in six months, they're literally ahead of you. Like you said, six months is a, is a pretty big deal. Look at image generation. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think anybody's thought even the slightest bit about what that looks like in three to five years. I think people are like, it'll make logo design easy. Like, <laughs> no, no, literally, literally zero, like, there's literally zero discourse about the big game there. I've tried to cover that in, in some robust depth, but you, that is a brilliant point, this idea that, yes, we've got our advantages. Oh, we're publishing the papers, whatever. Even if that stays far ahead, what's it take to get it to the field? Because if that's astronomically slow, we're in big trouble. What is it about China that gives them an advantage here? I mean, I, I look at our procurement process, and we've had you know folks in the DIU and the, the DOD and whatever else on the on the show. They're aware that this is clunky. They've got their little efforts and their their kind of spin ups and workshops and doing what they can to sort of make onboarding easier. It's still just an absolute horrendous slog in many regards, and, and I, I hope they make some progress and they can retain some damn talent. That's its own problem, but. China's got to be clunky too. There's got to be all kinds of corruption and other things. What is it about deployment that makes you feel like they're going to move faster? Well, first things first, and we've come a long way, but if you rewind back just, you know, four short years, you've got, you know, the stated kind of Chinese policy of civil military fusion, you know, that comes out every, you know, technology company has a member of the CCP sitting on their board and there's anointed chosen companies that, you know, are going to be the, you know, the iFly text, the sense times, like bang, you, you've been chosen for these capabilities. We're going to fund you and ensure there's a clear path for this to go straight into, into defense capabilities. So it's, it's quite thought out. It's quite controlled. There's no sort of ambiguities of that through it. And, you know, they really did choose some of the star performers in the Chinese economy and, and, and pick them as a special paths through to the, through to supplying our um, technology for defense yeah, on the flip yeah. side when, when we've invested here we've picked you know largely la big big consulting companies <laughs> yes and and you know primes that have you know really you know are better off you know bending metal and said hey here's some money you know go and build some ai and it's just like well well that's just not how any of that is done and so that, that's on the one side. On the other hand, you know, in respect to the folks at DIU and so on, you know, here's a $500,000, you 
you know, contract to kind of like prototype some stuff, which may or may not end up anywhere. And, you know, we, we can't give you any more certainty about, you know, what, what a deployment looks like, where it would come from or any things going. You think the tech companies sitting here in, in the Valley are like, you know what, I'll just sell, I'll just sell to this advertising company. I'll sell to this bank or sell to this thing. You know, I've, I've got a path, I've got a roadmap, I've got a capability. So I, I think I think there's some issues here. I think going forward from this, though, you know, the, the first bit of this is, you know, look, I think there was a wake up call for the Valley and the technology industry when when missiles started going through apartment windows and in, in Ukraine is like, oh, defense is important. And that's a huge move because, you know, four years ago, it was Google being like, we will never work with the oh, DOD. Jesus we'll never work Christ. with that. Oh, and it's like. So we've moved from there and everyone's like, right, well, actually, you know, defense is important, right? Step one. Step two is we've had some, I think, you know, good starting kind of contracts, you know, to kind of get in and and prototype and so on. But, you know, the reality here is like, I I think there has to be some very big contracts put on the table that can be openly competed for that have not just one year of funding, but have five years, 10 years of kind of dollars that can be put towards it. and you know, I think I think that's that's kind of where the the impetus from from DOD and from the Hill has to come is some big big dollar contracts with clear capabilities that are going to pick winners on top of this. There isn't a way to do this from the bottom up. You can't build, you know, a technology company without some certainty around where the dollars are going to come from. And you know, I think I think the DOD has to front up with some sizable contracts that aren't going to go to consultants and large-scale system integrators, but are actually targeted for the people that build the technology that's actually going to win these conflicts in the same way that China's done exactly the same thing. And they've got the, the lead on us for about four years here. Man, well, look, the the, the military-civil fusion ballgame, again, drastically under-talked about. And when Steve Blank was on the program, he had talked about the you know, you talked about bending metal. So these companies that know how to bend metal and do a little bit of digital, when we need to be thinking really digital and only bending the metal that suits that purpose, as opposed to things that rust, th- there is such a dependence on those firms. The embeddedness of the relationships with those firms really seems to be the name of the game. When I when I think about the people I know selling into that world and partnering up with some of these big consultants whose names should ring bells in people's minds right now, I'm not going to say old boys club necessarily, but there feels like a lot, a lot, a lot of that and, and, and not exactly a ton of inroads for bigger technology projects. But I think you touch on a final thing we'll close on this idea of Google being able to say, oh, we're, we're not going to support defense. In my opinion, if I'm China, I am throwing a like a, a full blown like Venetian, you know, masked ball when Google makes that kind of announcement. I love it. I love every giant technology company in the US to be like, yeah, no facial recognition, no, no military stuff. Yeah, right. I want them, I want them to attach their identity and their sense of virtue to not fighting. It is like I, I am I am absolutely throwing a ball. The masks are coming on. It's gonna be a freaking grand old time. So there's there's that cultural element that also seems like it needs to shift. We've, there's got to be an unplugging from the pure relationships with these ancient firms that we're going to pretend are AI consultants now. And there's got to be somebody maybe who doesn't have dyed hair at Google who's able to say, like, we'll ensure that Taiwan doesn't get decimated. Both of those feel important here, Sean. Yeah, and, you know, uh, what, if I were 
to run an information operation, you know, if if I if I could run an information operation to convince technology companies that that doing anything with defense was immoral, you know, I would consider that one of the biggest possible wins. You know, if I had my own social network that controlled every sort of engineer's kind of information feed that I could pipe that into, I mean, you know, that would be a good start. So, you know, <laughs> but look, you know, the serious thing here, and there are there are people that 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 really do appreciate and understand the mission. I think their voice there has, are, been, there are. has been there are. has been sort of you know, lost amongst all of this. The main thing, you know, here is, is, is I think is coming through and, and busting through the old order of lobbyists and, you know, contracts to people with no capabilities that are going to, you know, try and, you know, subcontract it out. We need for this technology ecosystem to engage with defense, to have prime contracts going to the best emerging technology startup countries that we have and to show that there's a viable path to bring technology to bear on this mission. And if you do that, the power of the ecosystem and the people that get up in the morning that really want to have an impact on the world, which is what Silicon Valley was built on, it's what drives it, it's what motivates it, that will come to bear on what I think is the biggest challenge. And look, the biggest asset that we've got is our ability to kind of run, mobilize and get stuff done that no one else in the world is doing. So like, you know, the message back here is like, let's get serious about this. And let's also, you know, harness that energy because the, the clock is ticking here. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. The, the title of this episode, If I Was Xi Jinping with Sean Gurley. So anyway, great array of topics here, Sean. I very much appreciate you being able to be frank about something that, in my opinion, is extremely important. I know that's all we have for time, but thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it, Dan. Thank you. So that is all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Sean for being able to join us, and thank you to you for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. Again, I think that this topic is drastically underrepresented. There are a great many topics that are sparkly and fiery and exciting when we talk about them on social, mostly things that have to do with right versus left politics, of which we have very little interest here at Emerge, and I certainly have very little interest personally. But there's very little, in fact, surprisingly little attention paid to the great risks to both the initiatives of the left and the right, which is to say the rise of authoritarian powers who, if they had enough control over the hardware and the software, would surely not be the ally of either. So I'm certainly not going to stop the political infighting in the United States with a handful of podcasts. That would be far too lofty of an objective. But I do think at least sprinkling into the mix some of these grander considerations around the future is an important dialogue and one that I'm really grateful that Sean is able to speak so frankly on. Not all CEOs are willing to talk about the big game and talk about things that are uncouth. Sean was able to really shoot straight in this episode, and I appreciate him for that. I certainly hope we get another chance to chat with Sean into the future. As mentioned in the intro to this episode, as we close, I just published a substantial piece in our series called AI Power on the topic of China's advantages in the metaverse and what the West might need to do to be able to deal with them. You can find that article at emerj.com slash China1, C-H-I-N-A, and then the number one emerj.com slash China one. Be sure to pop me a note on social, mention something on Twitter or LinkedIn. If you end up reading the article, very interested in outside perspectives. And if you're listening to this and you happen to know someone with some great perspectives on international relations and the power dynamics of AI, 
be sure to let me know. You can email us here at info at emerge.com or just find me on LinkedIn or shout me out on social. Really glad to be able to discuss this topic again. Grateful to Sean, grateful to you as our listeners. So thanks so much. I look forward to catching you in the next episode here on the AI and Business Podcast.